Ladies and gentlemen, I am particularly excited to introduce our keynote speaker this morning. Dr. Barbara Peavy is uh, an internationally recognized licensed psychologist who received her PhD from the University of North Texas, great school, uh, in behavioral medicine and clinical psychology. She also holds a postdoc degree in psychopharmacology. Dr. Peavy is currently the CEO and clinical director of the Lawless Peavy Psychoneuroplasticity Center, PNP, and she's also consulting psychologists with our good friends at Origins Recovery Centers, developing and integrating principles and practices of psychoneuroplasticity with the 12-step program. Cutting-edge stuff. She has over 40 years of experience and is truly a pioneer in brain health and self-regulation. Please give a warm tap welcome to Dr. Barbara Peavy. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Delighted to be here. Um, Suzanne and Ellen, your messages um, uh, I, uh, I echo. Um, each of you are superheroes. I want to bring um, some awareness of the, uh, of the brain into addiction and addiction treatment. <laughs> um, we each have one, and the interesting aspect of it is that we only get one of it. We, um, if you want to think about the idea that we figured out how to do heart transplants and sometimes liver transplants, but what sits between our two ears is an elite performance engine. And it's something that we, if we learn to take care of it, we can learn to, to have it last longer. You know, I always ask the question, which do you want to go first, your brain or your body? And so one of the things that we start taking a look at is I've had the extreme good fortune to be in this field for 40 years in the area of, of really self-regulation and, 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 uh, and biofeedback. And we couldn't be doing this presentation today without science pushing ourselves forward. But what I want to say today as I start moving through this is that I want everyone in here to see that this is going to be a talk that you can follow me through. You're going to hear me talk about the brain as if it's not you, but a trainable unit. And if you think about it, sometimes you can think about how your brain works. You can watch your brain works. You can see your thoughts moving through, the ones you can't stop. I sometimes ask, is your brain in charge of you or are you in charge of your brain? Who runs those thoughts? So as we get going today, what I want to go ahead and do is to talk an awful lot about brain health and how do we bring that into addiction and addiction treatment. Um, throughout the years, just to give you a little bit of background, I was in the field of biofeedback where that's where we're picking up the signals off the body and teaching people to self-regulate. As science moved forward, we could start looking at the brain. We could start studying the brain. Do you realize that prior to 1975, really the way we studied the brain was if somebody had a bullet or a knife or something, they fell off the back of a vehicle out of a tree or something like that. That's how we studied. What function did they used to have that they don't now and equate those functionings? But as we've been able to get more ability with science to match with 
MRI, CT scans, and a variety of ways of looking at it, we've been able to understand more about the brain. It sits in this wonderfully protected place. You cannot sample it um, without damaging it. It, it sits in a premier place, and, and yet we are beginning to be able to image it, have markers of it, be able to look at, at various things. So as a uh, psychologist, what I wanted to go ahead and do and began working with is incorporating the brain in looking at a variety of things. I want to explain what neuroplasticity is, and I am a person who typically moves. Um, so standing in front of a microphone is going to be an opportunity. The, um, the idea of neuroplasticity, what is neuro? Neuro means brain. Pretty simple. Plasticity is a flexibility. It means that it's got um, ability to be able to change. But a good way to look at that is it, look at a garden hose. Um, a garden hose that sat out in the sun is hard. One that is brand new is very supple and flexible. The supple and flexible is the plasticity. So it's, it, it has the ability for flexibility and for change. Now, what's fascinating is that the brain will change in the way that it grows. We used to think that it stopped growing. It does not stop growing. You are generating new brain cells right now, and you will continue to do so throughout your lifetime. So one of the things that I always have people become aware of, well, if that's the case, let's raise those new brain cells in a healthy environment. The healthier environment, the more apt our brain's going to be able to take care of us. So the idea that this concept has been around for a long time. You'll note on the slide that it says from 1892. Um, I, um, your, your brain is 100 billion electrical units. And they're called neurons. But they lay down pathways very much like railroad tracks, that one neuron talks to another neuron. I'm, I'm amazed at this floor. This floor probably is, is a lot of neurons, um, where the, you have the center of these are the cell bodies, and they reach out. But they're all interconnecting. Um, I had not noticed that till I was just standing here. But this is a great representation of the fact that we are, our brain is a network, and there's information traveling along it at all times. Everything we do relies on what sits between our two ears. Everything. So if I ask you to raise your hand, it comes from your brain. If I ask you to remember a password, draw a picture of a tree, add one plus one plus one, recall some strong feelings, it's sitting somewhere in your brain. What happens is, is that and then the carpet's not a bad way of looking at it, is that when all these cells begin to communicate with one another, they form networks. Um, another way to look at the, the, uh, the cell factors is that they're each a cell phone. Each one of these is a cell phone, and people are talking to one another. As you continue to build your network, the brain is based on networks. So you have networks in the front, the top, the back, and then they all interlink. So we are 
what effects we've now gotten great um, technology and the ability to be able to photograph um, these networks. Uh, these networks are very much um, what we want to develop. They are also part of what goes down with the toxicity of addiction. Now, what's fascinating is that they are recoverable in many respects. And we don't know the full extent, but because your brain is actually a survival tool, your brain will take you down before it dies. It tries to. So the idea of a blackout is one way, when I, when I look at this in certain respects, we used to think that the little kids who held their breath when they, that they might die. Well, we know that a young child who holds their breath isn't going to die. What's going to happen is the brain's going to knock them out because there's not enough oxygen. And then it's going to do a control-alt-delete and the child will come back. The idea with the brain and the blackout is similar, but it kills billions of cells in that process. And so the brain basically says, I'm going to take you down before you take me down. And so the idea of um, restoration and brain health and addiction becomes um, extremely important. Let me give you a few more ideas. The brain will change on its own. So the brain changes and goes through major development when childhood, adolescent. It is not fully developed until 25. There is new studies to believe that maybe it's not even until 32. So the idea that the insurance companies knew this. Um, for years, I would note that men's insurance rates don't drop until 25. Why is that? Neuroscience said the brain was finished at 18. Then we went, no, it's 21. And then we went, no, it's really not till 25. So the full linking up of the brain doesn't occur until age 25. So I think that the insurance company was observing something that it took science a very long time to put those pieces together. So what happens is, is that each of the areas of your brain develops, you learn new things, and then you learn how to coordinate your brain. And then you learn how to um, plan and think ahead. You know, for a 15-year-old, cleaning the room is really hard. But you know why? because it's a complex brain activity. They may know how to get their shoes up off the floor, into the closet, take their dishes to the kitchen, but sequencing what they do first, second, third, fourth is actually a complex activity. And their brain isn't really wired to be able to understand how to sequence that complex activity. So when I start looking at the adolescent brain, it is also wired for risk. Um, the adolescent, the way that we, we develop is that the emotional brain develops. The, in some ways, the superpower within, I can do anything, I'm invincible, um, there's nothing that can stop me. That part goes ahead and develops first. Now, the part that's coming along second is the ability to manage that power or the executive functioning. So planning and judging, judgment and um, consequences of behavior, that does not come in from 17 through 25. 
So from 13 to 17, we have a very invincible brain, and then gradually the net network comes in. Now, it's also been said that's very fortunate that it happens, because in many respects, none of us would have a cell phone unless we had people like Jobs, and then we wouldn't have the computers we have without Gates, who really started their forward thinking and breaking out of the box in their early and mid-teenage years, 16, 17, 18 years old. They used that why not attitude, I'm invincible, to create beautiful, wonderful, extended projects. The idea is that if you understand that when you're working in addiction, that think about the ages of where that individual is and how much brain development is actually on. And that sometimes as counselors, you're actually their frontal lobe. You're actually the one that helps them plan, think, put pieces together, be able to um, uh, start to mature the native intelligence that, that an individual has. I'll double check on something. So as we age, what begins to happen is your brain just simply gets more complex, more capable, because it's laying down more and more networks. That's why you go to school. You know, I tell, I tell people that don't want to go to school, I say, you know why you're in school? And that is to take my place someday. And they look at me and they go, hmm. I've got something to learn. And I'm like, well, I'm not saying I know it all. I just happen to have an area of expertise. But it's so important to train what sits between your two ears. It loves to be trained. And many times it's like a puppy. And I have a brand new puppy. And I tell you, when I try to tell my brain to sit, sit it reminds me sometimes of trying to train my, my, new, my new puppy. Because when I want to do a mindful meditation and my brain is jumping around and I'm asking it to just focus on one thing, it's really hard. But after practice, it will actually begin to do it. So your brain is extremely trainable. So the stronger the connections between various areas of the brain, the more powerful the behavior is. That happens in addiction. It also happens in, in uh, sober living. Now, how does the brain communicate with one another? The brain communicates with these 100 billion neurons, but they don't touch. They actually have sender substances, so it sends from one to the other with neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitter means brain sender. The ones that are dominant for mood and mood management are serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and GABA. How many of you have heard of all of those? All right. Let me ask an interesting question. Has anybody ever had a course in the brain? Good. I'm glad to see it's finally going. The audience that I had um, two months ago really wasn't something that we're really talking about. But I do think we're finally getting to a point where we can do it. So. The idea is that the brain communicates with neurotransmitters. Now, as we start to work with these, dopamine is the one that is connected with reward. You'll know serotonin. Serotonin is often the one that's, that's working with depression. So the uh, idea of norepinephrine is really more arousal, and GABA is the calming one. Um, broad generalizations, but that gives you a little bit of an idea. Here's the interesting thing. 
you generate new neurons. It's called neurogenesis. <clears throat> it happens in the hippocampus area in the very center of your brain for memory. So the ones that are generating happen to be related to your ability <clears throat> to recall and, and think and process. So neuroplasticity means the brain's going to change on its own. It's going to change in its structure, and it's going to change in its functioning. And it's going to change in response to a, a mental activity, a new cognitive. It'll have to change in response to a blow to the head. That your brain is going to constantly be able to um, adapt and to change. Uh, you're here today. You're actually laying down. If you learn something new throughout these two days, and you recall it and you retain it, you have, in fact, changed the brain and the brain structuring and wiring. So the brain likes to be exercised, and this is a form of exercising, if you want to think about it. So the idea of coming away with a new tool, maybe feeling refreshed, maybe getting back in touch with some old memories, your brain is beginning to... To, to support you in the ways that allow you to function optimally. Psychoneuroplasticity, in, psychoneuro in anything means mind-body. Um, <clears throat> so I had one of the first studies in psychoneuroimmunology, which is our ability with our brain to change our immune system. So the idea is that you can actually use psychoneuroplasticity where you're intentionally changing the brain, not accidentally. And one of my big messages today is that if you run a treatment center, if you're doing therapy, you have a brain that has presented itself and you have an opportunity to train it. You have an opportunity to be able to expand it. You have an opportunity to be able to get that brain to take on new information and hopefully create a shift in that. So, Here's the thing, what one practices over and over and over strengthens those connections in your brain. So if you're driving home the same way over and over and over again, you're strengthening that connection. So sometimes when you drive home, you don't even think about driving home. Your brain's already got that pathway, it just dials it up, and the next thing you know, you're sitting in your driveway and you're like, how'd I get here? Well, <clears throat> it's because you laid down that pathway. How many of you, you know, knew how to ride a bike but haven't ridden a bike but picked up a bike and it took a little while but you could feel your brain dust off that memory and go back and recall it and if you all of a sudden change locations and maybe you lived in a place where you, you could ride a bike more frequently to work, then you would strengthen those neurons. So <clears throat> the idea of what we do strengthens um, and makes the connection stronger, and the ones that we don't use begin to allow or weaken it. So when you're in active addiction, you're strengthening those pathways. And the ones that are weakened is how to live sober. So the opposite is true when you start working with somebody on sober living. You need to strengthen those pathways and essentially weaken the pathways related to use. Now, they don't go away because those pathways are there. It's just like a bike. You can remember how to ride a bike. All right? So the idea, though, of what do you want 
the individual to be able to learn, are you presenting the information so that the individual can learn it? Because I think in certain respects, as, as, and I'm going to call you not only super healer, or superheroes, but super healers, um, because I feel like in here, everyone is a healer. And your, your ability to be able to um, help people uh, recover their lives is, is a healing process. So <clears throat> the idea of understanding the process of strengthening and then weakening is important. What I'm going to suggest is we do it intentionally. So intentional learning affects new brain growth, and then it allows us to begin to integrate our heart, mind, body, and spirit. The way that we start to do that is we need to enliven the brain, we need to train the brain, and we need to teach the individual to do so many things for themselves instead of relying on outside substances. I've been in this field long enough to watch the surge of pharmacology in the early 90s um, and the magnitude and the increase of medications that are being prescribed to children. Well, if I think about 1991 and I look at where we are today, that's 24 years. And so we are literally raising brains on drugs. <clears throat> and so when we start to take those drugs away from children, who are now adults, and oh, by the way, they inherited an addiction disease, um, they go, well, how do I function? I've, I don't know how to function. As a child, you put me on a drug, a methamphetamine, maybe Ritalin, and then you taught me that I couldn't do school without a drug, and now you're telling me I've got addiction and I can't use them, so how am I to function? A very real scenario. And we're seeing more of it, of the idea that when we started pushing in the early 90s, the incredible increase um, in uh, uh, drugs. So in the early 2000s, I went back to school and got a postdoctorate degree in psychopharmacology. There are probably now uh, 10 or 12 states that I could prescribe in. I did not go back to school to get that degree to prescribe. I got it to figure out what do you think you're doing with that drug so that I can figure out how to teach people to take care of themselves. So that's been my life mission. So the idea is that we, that, that we have substances that we bring on and it, we're using them to change us to the left, to the right. Was that the book 1984 said we'd be doing this? So the idea is that we want to start to take a look at how we take back control. I want to be able to start talking about addiction and the reward pathway. Um, addiction is a disease. I'm not sure it falls in exactly everyone's mind of what you might think of a physical disease, but I want to describe what it is because I think it's extremely important that people who have addiction understand that it is a disease. And then it's very important that that gets translated to the family. I often will tell someone who has maybe and often inherited, you have the addiction disease, you weren't born with club foot, you weren't born blind, but you were born with this. And it's manifested now. And it's going to be something that you have to take care of. So like a diabetic, you're going to have to take care of it every single day of the rest of your life. 
And so putting it into some sort of a perspective that begins to allow, I want to drill down a little bit and talk about the idea of the addiction pathway. This is just a cross-section of the brain as if I took a saw and just went through the half of the brain. So the front of the brain <clears throat> is towards the, uh, I'm going to, um, the front of the brain is here. I know I have two screens. I don't know how to do this way. So I'll, uh, left-handed, I'll probably use this screen. So the front of the brain is here. This is the back of the brain. This is the brain stem. Your brain is divided into three areas. The most primitive part of the brain is the lower part of the brain. That's for sleeping and feeding. Um, the mid part of the brain is the emotional brain, right through here. And then you have higher cortical function, which is all this gray matter. So this is where the billions of cells are. And then down here is where that memory and hippocampus are. And then down here is the more primitive brain that takes care of us on a daily basis. So where does addiction sit? Well, it's this interesting pathway. It's called the ventral tegmental pathway. It's VTA. It doesn't mean anything. But it, what is a pathway? It's like a train station. Here's a train station here, train tracks to here, train station here, train station up to here. So what it does is it actually goes to this little place in front of your brain called the nucleus accumbens. Learn it. It's pretty easy. It's about the size of a walnut. It happens to be your pleasure center. It loves dopamine. It's the one that gets going. And once it gets going, it seeks. It is your hot seeker. It's what keeps someone using to the point that they'll go ahead and take themselves down. So the idea is that this nucleus accumbens then is connected where? To the front of the brain. So it takes down the frontal cortex. What is the frontal cortex? Planning, thinking ahead. So now I've taken down the planning, thinking ahead. I'm into going ahead and super stimulating myself and developing the pleasure principle. And this pathway is like a forest fire. It dominates all higher cortical structure and it begins knocking out the ability to use those billions of neurons with sense and sensibility. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter of reward. It's what we all seek with pleasure. So normal types of pleasure, we're going to include food, water, sex, and nurturing. All of these, actually, when you drink water, you're secreting dopamine. Now, I will also say every time you hit your cell phone, check to see if you have messages. That's also a hit of dopamine. All right? <clears throat> Facebook, hit of dopamine. As a matter of fact, um, hitting your cell phone and, and, and Facebook are beginning to um, equate to some other substances I'll talk about in a moment. They're actually higher than these right here. So... <clears throat> um, I, I appreciate you refraining from, from those hits, but if you need to, I understand. Um, so we, we are naturally designed for reward. We are naturally designed, and that is one of the positive things, but it's also the pathway that could be abused. So something that is very helpful can also be overused. If you look, and this is a hard slide to see, so I'm just going to give you, this is 0, 50, 100, 200. 
So when we eat, we dump dopamine and we get this spike and then it tapers off. When we have sex, we get a little higher spike and then it tapers off. Look what happens with amphetamines, cocaine, nicotine, and morphine. So here's 200 down here. So here's the spike where those natural rewards are. Look at the spike on amphetamine. Cocaine, not quite that high, but still very elevated. Nicotine is about double of what the others are, and then morphine. So what it does is it hits that lever for lots of dopamine, and that's what we get addicted to because that's the pleasure. That's the comfort. And it's that pathway that begins to get used. So here's the pathway. Primarily, and this is the current studies, and what you have to understand is every year, I used to teach at the university on the faculty, and I would teach a course in the fall, and then from the fall to the following year, I would be reading articles about how many discoveries that we've made and how do I translate that. So brain and brain science is a moving art. We know what we know so far and it's going to change tomorrow. So what I'm saying today is the best knowledge I know how to give you, but it's going to change. We're gonna be able to discover more insight. So what we understand is that the pathway, and it's a little more of what I'm gonna call a southern pathway, related to the um, um, idea of heroin, cocaine, nicotine. Now look at alcohol. Alcohol comes over the top. It actually goes through another area called the globus pallidus. So the question I often ask is, somebody who has an addiction to alcohol doesn't care for drugs, or somebody who has an addiction to drugs doesn't care for alcohol. Is it explained by this possibility, this pathway? Maybe. Um, the interesting thing is when active addiction gets going, the, this pathway will just become a forest fire and it really doesn't matter. Um, but we are essentially overusing this pathway. So your brain is changing to become an addict. It's literally wiring itself because it thinks that's what it's supposed to do. Um, now, here's the interesting thing I want you to see. Do you see these just little dots? That's the amount of dopamine that's dumped with natural rewards of food and sex, water. Look at the dumping of the dopamine with cocaine. So it's bombarding the brain. And every time it hits the brain, it's sparking it up. So what we begin to do is we, we understand what's happening now we have to figure out what do we do. One of the things I want to talk about, and I'll come back, what do we do, is I want to talk about opioid um, and how opioids hijack the brain because it is truly a hijacking. Some of it is a forest fire, but this is a hijacking of the brain. The brain makes its own opiates. That's why opiates work. It's because we make our own opiates. However, what we do, and when we take on manufactured drugs or prescriptions, we all of a sudden go above what our normal or natural ability are. So we bombard those receptors. So we take on the drug, 
And as long as the drug and the receptors are equal, we're fine. But now we inundate with the opioid receptors. The brain doesn't know why you're doing that. So what does the brain do? It develops new receptors. So now instead of these receptors, you've got this many receptors. So literally what starts to happen is the compensating mechanism that the brain does when you bring on more of those opioids is it makes more opioid receptors. When you go to withdraw from the opiate, now instead of having, say, five receptors, you've got ten that you have to withdraw. And so what happens is, is that it then because I've created more receptors, I'm more sensitive to pain because opioids and pain management was big, is big. So we get into this vicious cycle. So when we start pulling people off and detoxing off of opioids, often, and I had this happen at Origins twice, we have pain patients say, I feel better. I'm not in as much pain off of my opioid medications or non-prescription. And this is the explanation. Because when it's not there, the brain's going to adapt and reduce those receptors. It's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen. So that the individual, the brain's going to try to regulate how many receptors it has for how much drug it's got to deal with. So what I want to talk about is um, next is, is some imaging that we've been able to do on the brain. As I said, the way we used to study the brain was pretty archaic. We would say, well, this person used to be able to do this and now they can't. And then we'd have to do it on autopsy. We'd have to wait for that to happen. The good thing is we all don't have to die to figure out what's going on in the brain anymore. So the most... Um, I'm going to talk about some of the better technology. Uh, <clears throat> this is a spec scan, which is a 3D um, image of the brain. So on the one hand, I'll talk about these two images, but you can see that a spec scan is going to go ahead and take an image coming along on this rotating. That's the bottom. There, that's actually the front of the brain. This is going along the top and then there's the back of the brain. So what I want to talk about with this slide is the idea that we are seeing that healthy brains don't have holes. These holes here just are um, areas your, your brain or your skull holds your brain. Your brain is about the consistency of butter. And then the skull is a, um, is a bony structure, so it's really hard, and it's also kind of rigid. But it has poles so that it holds the brain into place. So those are the natural poles that you're seeing. When we start, when we start imaging substances, we start seeing these holes pop in the brain. So this is a brain on drugs. Um, this one, I'll show you one on, this one's on cocaine. So that's decreased functioning. The brain's literally melting and dissolving. So the idea is we've got to recover that brain, and that brain's on two years, two years of use. One of the other things I want to talk about is the idea of marijuana. How many of you get the message that marijuana is not that bad? I think we hear that over and over again. I'm a kid out of Colorado. That's where I went to school. It's my generation in certain respects that started this. 
So when I start talking to people about marijuana, um, they, they try to give me the message that it's not quite as bad. Well, the idea that you need to understand is that the opi or excuse me, the um, cannabinoid receptors inside the brain are very widespread. They're in many more locations. So what starts to happen is the same amount of, of, of marijuana goes to many areas. And so this slide simply, and it's not an easy slide to read, but you can see that there are several different areas of the brain goes to, to the, the area for emotions and it goes to the balance and it goes to the memory and it goes to higher cortical functioning um, and it goes to eating and sleeping. So very widespread throughout the brain. So when you take on the substance, it needs to go to all of these areas. So in certain respects, if I had a dollar and I needed, and I had 10, 10 places I needed to serve, I'd be able to do 10 cents a piece. So what happens is though, as they add drugs to that, you begin to bring the whole brain down. So more sites don't mean that it's less, it's not having the negative impact. What I explain sometimes is that THC is very sticky and it's kind of an oil base and it's probably part of the reason they're going to have a hard time figuring out um, you can do an alcohol test and try to figure out how much alcohol somebody's done is water soluble. THC is oil based. They're going to have a difficult way of trying to figure out toxicity levels. So the idea though is that if you, your, your brain is light and feathery, those neurons, and if you take a feather and you dip it in molasses, the THC is like molasses. It's still a feather, but the idea, and I, I sometimes get people's awareness that neurons are light and feathery. When you dip them in THC, it's very much like taking a bird's feather and dipping it in molasses. It's still a feather, but it may not fly that bird. Um, <clears throat> so marijuana, um, and again, this is the bottom side of a brain. Over here is the healthy. This is what we want it to look like. This is, uh, you can start seeing these pot mocks. And notice that it's largely in the front of the brain, planning and thinking, comes along the side, memory. So this A motivation, the difficulty with uh, memory, both short and long-term memory, is, is because of the damage being done. So decreased blood flow to the frontal and temporal regions, and then the brain areas for attention, memory, and motivation are affected. This is with a uh, cocaine. This is a PET scan. A PET scan is showing that here's the blood flow to the front of the brain, with drug use, it starts to decrease. Um, this is a healthy control in the memory area. This is a meth user. Notice how it starts going away. So the forest fire begins to take down the brain. The good news is the brain is a survival tool. It wants to live. It wants its function back. And that's the great news. And that is the news that you need to carry. But the only way it happens is if we stop the toxicity 
of the drug inundation or the alcohol. And we begin to allow the brain to heal. And what I want to spend the rest of the time is talking about is how do we help heal the brain? Because healing the brain and maintaining the brain is going to allow that individual to be healthy and to also be able to have the reserves to stay sober. So here is what happens with um, a healthy person. This is a, um, you saw the, the slide back here with the decreased in the meth. This is one month recovered and then this is one year. So not full function back at the end of the year. We often say that the brain has two years to heal following any use. It will, it, and it probably could heal longer than that, but this is not a process that happens in 30 days. It is not a process that happens in 90 days. It is a process that happens over a year, over two years. So just like stroke and stroke recovery, we used to think that you could only recover it after the first few weeks. We now know that the brain can recover function over much longer periods of time. So these stats that I'm giving you about, um, you know, a year to two years, we may see with longitudinal studies that we're more capable of doing that we are able to recover more function down the road. So the fascinating aspect of this is the fact that with the brain it's recoverable. Now, the spec scan, the PET scans, they're like snapshots on your phone. What I do, and I have a clinic, and in, in didn't maybe come clear in, in uh, Dallas with Dr. Lawless, that we do the psychoneuroplasticity. It's a, it's a two-day full assessment, which we do a brain map. We do um, looking at biofeedback in the body stress. We do cognitive testing. Uh, we do uh, medical testing for um, heavy metals and toxicity and psychological, and our age range is from 6 to 84. We got asked by Ben Levinson, um, who opened Origins about seven years ago, to take the concepts of neuroplasticity and put them inside of an addiction treatment center. So we have the psychoneuroplasticity inside of Origins, in which Dr. Lawless and I go ahead and coordinate and run with the Origins treatment centers. So I'm very invested in how do we help recover the brain because I'll often say that the 12 step is going to give you the trellis to learn how to live, but my job is to help you get your brain back. And I never have had any one of them say they didn't want me to help them get their brain back. They kind of like that idea because I think there is this awareness on a conscious or unconscious, whether they want to admit it, you do see the changes that you're not functioning as highly as you were when you were sober. So I do studies that are an electrical study of the brain. Remember, the brain is 100 um, billion neurons. And so this is an individual with the cap um, doing a reading task. A reading task simply challenges the brain. We look at the brain at rest. We look at the brain um, uh, with eyes open, eyes closed, and then a, a working it. It creates a map, a, um, literally a movie of your brain. And what's interesting is we can see changes with active addiction. Uh, we had a young man in who has um, very strong coke, meth, 
and alcohol um, addiction. Um, and we see it on a map. And the electrical, the, the electrical framework of the map is literally, his brain is fragile right now. Fragile in the idea that it's barely firing and connecting with one another. It's short of seizing. And seizures are often what happens. So when the brain starts going down, the electrical system, it would be any different if I lost the power, sorry, the lost the power in the hotel. So our, we see it on these brain maps. But what we also do is we can see it change. So we actually have images over time, and I'll show you a couple, of the brain capable of healing through 90 days of treatment. And that's all we've done a good, solid 90 days of treatment. So I now want to talk about another aspect of how we can use the, the imaging of this technology. An individual comes to you with addiction, but there's a reason that if you got rid of the addiction that ADD, ODD, um, some of the OCD, some of the depression or anxiety may still be there, right? Doesn't go away. So it's almost as if we have a person who has an addiction disease and then we have the person. And often the person is medicating some of those symptoms. When If I can get a clean brain, in other words, if I can get a month off marijuana, I can, I can honestly look at it, may not fully have recovered, but I can look at the underlying pathways and see and diagnose other types of problems. Um, I, I want to point out, because we started in 2004 looking at, at, at ADD and ADHD, Dr. Lawless and I did with the PNP Center. The idea was psychologists probably had a better idea of working with this field. We didn't believe that diagnosing everyone ADD was. What we have found since 2004 to today is 80% of what's being diagnosed of ADD is not ADD. So we have a 75 to 80% misdiagnosis, which means we have a 75 to 80% methamphetamine delivery system we don't need to be doing. The Food and Drug Administration came and said in December, or excuse me, July 2013, the only way to know whether you have ADD or not is to do an electrical study of the brain. I am going to show you ADD on a map. Um, it's right there. Uh, it's in the area, your brain has different speeds, so it has a fast speed connected with beta thinking and processing. You're all thinking and processing. If you closed your eyes, you'd go into alpha or relaxation. Theta is that nice zony place where you're watching television and somebody comes along and goes, hello, are you there? And then delta is when you're asleep. So we just have little areas of the brain. So what we see is that ADD happens to be in the front. There's the nose. That's what that little pointy thing is. And see those little fish things? Those are supposed to be ears. Um, is too much slowing in theta. So the person's moving around to keep their brain awake. The interesting thing is, if we do a map and you show this pattern, I have ADD, Dr. Lawless has ADD. I love my ADD. 
I'm like the Energizer Bunny. I'm going to keep going and going and going and going. I needed to learn to, to manage that because in certain respects it was like having you know, wild horses and I had to figure out how to bring them into the corral and let one of them go out at a time. But, but it allows me to be highly, in, highly creative. So please don't take mine away from me. Um, so I'm actually old enough to, to be on the other end going, I love it. So this idea of um, being able to, to pick up this pattern is um, very, very important. So if you have young, if you have families and all of a sudden you know there's addiction in the family and you know they're getting ready to try to put a son or a daughter on addiction medicine, ask them to get a QEG. Ask them to make sure that in fact they have the brain pattern connected with ADD. I think we can do that with prevention. So what are the areas that we could do a quantitative EEG and be able to pick up for you and be able to help? We could look at ADD or other attentional challenges. The brain, I always tell people, 100% of the people coming in are having a difficulty with focus and attention, but only 20% are ADD. So let's find out if your son or daughter or yourself really has the ADD, but let's look at the rest of the brain too. We can pick up OCD, that perfectionism, brain looping, depression, anxiety, learning challenges, difficulties with emotional understanding, emotional regulation. We can pick up seizure activity, elliptiform activity. We can pick up brain toxicity. Uh, and we can also pick up uh, difficulties with sleep and sleep patterns. So a quantitative EEG is a great tool to be able to use. You are going to hear me say, please don't have someone do an EEG a QEEG without 90 days clean. Why? Because they're just going to keep measuring the drugs on board. And I'm going to show you pictures where the brain will heal itself. So if you do an imaging study before that time and the brain's still healing, then you're diagnosing on a healing brain. Why don't you let it do its work and then you come along and support it afterwards? So that is good, that in, in my history and my experience is what I'd like to be seeing us do. So now let's move, and we're out of the imaging. I want to specifically talk about brain health. Brain health is important to address in addiction treatment. How many can agree? All right, well, I'm going to show you why, and hopefully I have everybody raising your hands in a minute. Um, the brain is a functional unit um, used to maintain sobriety. The healthier it is, the better able you're going to be able to maintain sobriety. Brain health can be improved. What we're looking at is, at origins, is that we're combining the neuroplasticity with addiction treatment. So it's origins, 12-step plus PNP. And I, this is a great slide. Um, this is a pathway that was beat down through a forest through repeated use. This represents the brain. So you can actually begin to create new brain tracks in the brain by repeating over and over. Let me give you another example. Let's suppose you had a home that you were building and you were fortunate enough to have the money to build a real nice home and it sits on top of a hill. You have a little acreage. It's on a country road. To bring in the materials, you just cut across the field to go ahead and bring the materials. And so you pretty soon over-repeated this field. You now have a little dirt pathway. Everybody see that dirt pathway? 
All right, then you decide, oh, wait, wait, that's not where we're going to put the driveway. We're going to put the driveway this way. So you don't really do anything with that dirt pathway. Grass grows over it, but that dirt pathway is still there. And then you laid down a new pathway. Think about that as the way that the brain works. But we have to repeat something enough over and over and over again to lay down those new pathways. It isn't going to happen if we just have one presentation. Very few things that brain learns on one trial learning. You know one thing it does on one trial learning? Ever gone to a restaurant, gotten bad food? Will you go back to that restaurant? It's like one trial learning, okay? So um, here's, where, here's, what, here's where I feel that the big book is like a trellis. Um, Remember, my perspective, my approach, is simply brain health and trying to recover a brain. I have a brain that's been using. I have a brain that doesn't know how to be sober. I have a brain that really has no plan. If you withdraw the drugs, it's still clueless about what to do. It doesn't have a plan. So the one thing that I will say from neuroscience perspective that 12-step does is it offers that brain a plan. It offers that brain structure. It offers that brain goal setting. It offers that brain an opportunity to become honest with itself. So what do I see? Um, I, I certainly see that 12-step is a hope for change. The structure is phenomenally important. If you're not a 12-step program, please have another structure that you're going to train the brain. It needs structure. Otherwise, it's going to go back to doing what it used to do. Makes sense. I don't know what else to do. How many adolescents? Please don't mess with that. You don't tell them something else to do, what do they do? They go right back to it. However, if we say, don't do that, but do this, and now they're over here doing some another activity we want them to do, we have better control. So if you don't want the brain to do one thing, focus on what you want it to do and think about it from brain perspective. Go for what you want. Teach them how to do what you want them to do. We are seeing people who are getting exposed to marijuana in third and fourth grade. They're 36 years old now. The longest time they've spent sober is four months. Maybe they've done four months 10 times. Maybe they've done it 20. But do you see the point that one of the questions and one of the concerns they will bring to me is I am clueless about how to do everyday sober. I don't know how. So until we get some training programs, some trellises with the brain, I think that Big Book is certainly going to offer new information and get opportunity for new insights. It's a shift from the exterior world of taking in acceptance to looking at values interiorly. It does focus on transpersonal awareness. I, I taught stress management for so many years, and I teach that uh, stress management is balance of your heart, your mind, your body, and your spirit. And I had somebody that took exception in the back of the room and said, spirit, you mean two martinis. I said, if that's your definition of spirit. So the idea is I'm looking at this transpersonal awareness. Um, in my estimation, there's you, me, and the energy between us. 
So there's, there's a lot of very open ways of starting to explore what that looks like. Uh, I think quantum physics offers, offers a great way for people to begin getting a little more attached. If they have a higher power, that's terrific. But I do think there's ways to teach transpersonal awareness. Um, with willingness and commitment, it lays down new brain pathways. Uh, and recovery strengthens new pathways and allows the brain to heal. There does need to be a shift from just being sober to living sober. And so congratulations. I imagine most of you have made that transition to, to, to knowing how to be sober on a day-to-day -day in and out. Your brain is hopefully supporting you in that way. If not, learn new tools because your brain will continue to support you. So if I add directing the brain, which is neuroplasticity, what do I want to do in an addiction recovery center? I wanted, here's the things we need to do. We need to decrease brain inflammation. The toxicity of all of those drugs and watching the decreased blood flow that you saw on those spec scans ought to scare you. So what we have to do is that is an inflamed brain. You don't think about it, but your brain has its own immune system. All right, let's take your wrist. You have a healthy wrist, but you play tennis, and all of a sudden you sprain your wrist, and then you get the water. You get inflammation. It acts as a guard. Or you cut yourself, and you see the red around as, it, as that cut begins to heal. That is inflammation. That's your immune system coming in, getting rid of the toxicity. Fascinatingly, we have an immune system at the level of the brain, but we can't feel it because we have no pain receptors at the level of the brain. So if there's a weakness, I'm not going to say there is, there's got to be a purpose, but the idea is you don't see or feel. You experience it with decreased memory. You experience when there's enough damage done. But think about the idea that we've got to decrease that inflammation. One way that we did to decrease it is that we start removing the substance, the substance that's causing the inflammation. That doesn't mean the brain's still not going to have some inflammation, so I need to talk about what we do. Then we're going to nourish the brain. One of the things that happens is what you eat is how your brain is fed. Your brain has no other way of being able to get the substances it needs but what you put in your mouth. That's it. So what you eat is how your brain is fed. So we need to look at gut function and we need to look at nutrition because if we want to nourish the brain, we want to go ahead and do that. And then we want to train the brain. So let's talk about this nutrition. As I just said, what we eat is how the brain is fed. What we know is protein and healthy fats are what you want. So all of these diets that we've come along and we've said fat is bad, fat is not bad, fat is good. And may I be up here with, with those that are doing the paleo diet, the zone diet, and turning around and saying that we are made up of, of fat and we need fat. Um, we need healthy fat. We need the avocados, the nuts, the salmon. Um, but we need our healthy dose of, of our butter um, once in a while, saying all the time, to be able to go ahead and nourish the brain and body. So protein, uh, protein in your meats, your nuts, uh, peanut butter, um, 
eggs, uh, beans and rice is a complete protein, variety of proteins. Um, and then the carbohydrates are best if they are in that green leafy vegetable area. Need to eliminate any food sensitivities. Um, what is a food sensitivity? A lot of, many of you have found that you're a little gluten sensitive. I've found over the years that if I have products with gluten, I'm more tired. If I stay away from the gluten, I have more energy. Gluten is in wheat. And so by avoiding the gluten, I actually have more energy. We've seen children become incredibly um, irritable. Um, we get rid of the gluten or the dairy, whatever that food sensitivity is. You are a spirit in a bucket of chemicals. Not every food that you eat do you process with efficiency. Sometimes that food, that chemical that you put in, literally makes you hungrier, makes you sleepier. It's not an allergy, but it's a sensitivity. It is a part of the immune system, but it may make you more irritable. It may make you um, more tired. Being able to identify, and people have, have looked at their own, you can simply keep a food diary on your own and just note the food you eat and the mood. And over 10 days, you'll begin to see a pattern break out of what I eat, how does it affect how I feel. Avoid monosodium glutamate. Avoid aspartame. Monosodium glutamate and aspartame. Aspartame is in diet drinks. Diet drinks with aspartame, are, that's a neurotoxin. That is brain inflammation. We will see that, and we've been pushing, we're seeing more Splenda, we're seeing more other types of products, um, be able, Stevia, go into our diet drinks. But aspartame is a neurotoxin, and it needs to be eliminated as far as all the diet drinks. Um, I could go on and on about the negative aspects of that. It blocks your ability to lose weight. Uh, and so we're, if I'm trying to build a brain back, I'm not going to want known neurotoxins. MSG is what used to be in Chinese food. People would, if you look on the back of chips, 50%, it's a flavor enhancer, 50% of chips have MSG, 50% do not. The other is we're going to pull back on sugar. People don't like that idea, but sugar is inflammatory, and I already have an inflammatory brain. I'm trying to recover a brain. I know that people get into sugar cravings because it mirrors a little bit of the alcohol. It mirrors a little bit of, of some of the kinds of substances. But the most important reason, if I have 60 calories in sugar, I want to do 60 calories in protein. I want to be able to be able to get the brain to come on back, to be able to give it what it needs, to have building blocks, to be able to regenerate its, uh, its system. Um, and to be able to detoxify. And so I know that, that what we do, water is almost like a neurotransmitter. This looks like a lot, but half your weight in ounces. I'm not saying that that, you know, and I don't know that we can all do that every day in and day out, but if you're going through some inflammatory processes and getting over some things or you're exercising and you're doing a lot of things, that water intake is very, very important. You can overwater. But the rule of thumb is, is right at half your weight in ounces. Exercise, sweating, uh, South Padre um, on the island is great because I tell them drink lots of water and sweat. 
what better way are you going to purify your system? Um, so we do know that, the, that exercise is going to mobilize resources. It's going to get more blood flow to the brain. It's going to distribute oxygen to the brain. I mean mild to moderate exercise, especially if somebody hasn't been exercising. Do not go into over-exercise. Sleep. Uh, I'm going to talk about in a few minutes how to sleep naturally. Uh, what we do know is we need about 7.5 hours. The brain sleeps in 90-minute cycles. So basically, 90 minutes times 5 is 7.5. 90 goes to 3, 4.5, 6, 7.5. So an average. And there are people in here who can get away with less. We're not sure how you do it. And there are people who need more. But the rule of thumb down the middle of the road is around 7.5 hours a night. We want to go ahead, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, essential. You have five football fields of fat in your brain. The idea is that it's the insulation on the wires. So the neurons, these, many of them have, a, a, it's called myelin. They have a, a sheet that allows the communication to occur, it's made up of largely omega-3s. What we find is with that brain inflammation, you've worn that system out. Increasing omega-3 fatty acids allows the brain to detoxify much faster. Um, I will tell you of a study, not in addiction, but, in, but very important with uh, a, uh, a major colonel out of the Pentagon, um, MD nutritionists went over to, this was Afghanistan, and sampled, it's a simple blood stick to look at your omega-3 levels, and found, because he was trying to come up with the solution for the suicides, um, is there anything in the nutrition, anything going on that we could help improve? So he found out with this platoon he was being able to, to follow that Instead of being at 8 or higher, I'm going to say 10 or higher, he was willing to settle with the 8. They were down to 3 to 4. So all he did, he could follow this platoon for only uh, for 12 weeks. But we boosted the omega-3s. He boosted it up, and I will give you the formula. I will talk about it if somebody else wants it. And then measured him 12 weeks later. He had an 80% decrease in suicidality. All he did was boost the omega-3s. Depression improved by 90%. He said one of the values is a lot of the aches and pains seem to go away too. We need to, we're kind of like the tin man. We need to be well-oiled. So if you want to think about the idea that the omega-3s. So omega-3 fatty acids decrease brain inflammation, promote neural connections, and de decrease mental health risks. Um, there, when I was uh, studying um, psychopharmacology, the idea of bipolar is really more of brain inflammation. Um, and so if you correct diet and you start su supporting with the omega-3 fatty acids, you see many of those symptoms actually go away. There's a lot of research and data out of there that if you supplement and you start nourishing the brain, you'll start seeing this emotional dysregulation start to min minimize by taking a look at food sensitivities and being able to start to, to give the brain what it needs with omega-3s. Vitamin D. Um, 
new new reports say we should be monitoring our children's um, vitamin D levels all the way through the age ranges, and you really need to have a blood test, simple blood test. Every time you have a blood test, say, Doc, run my vitamin D level. If it's low, they will tell you, do you need to be on 1,000, 2,000, 5,000? Please don't just go out there and do it on your own. Go have a blood test. Incorporate it in your next physical. You probably get away with 1,000 a day, um, but the benefit is if you are low, you're fighting an inflammation at the level of your brain or your heart and, or other parts of your body. And if you boost your vitamin D, you're giving your brain and body what it needs to be able to fight that inflammation. The stronger the brain and the body, the more apt it's going to work in recovery. So now I'm going to mention hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, I think hyperbaric is not for everyone, but especially if you're dealing with brain trauma as far as a head injury, um, fell off the back of a car, cracked their head, whatever, hyperbaric would be extremely helpful um, adding to that process. It doesn't have to be during recovery, but at some point in time. Uh, we look at heavy metals. Um, the ones that work with cognition are lead, mercury, aluminum, tin, and arsenic. Um, we'll also look at hormone balance. Female hormones going out of balance, male hormones going out of balance. They will contribute to depression, lack of energy. I want to talk to you about MTHFR. Um, we are running MTHFR tests on a variety of, of patients on the island at South Padre. How, does anyone know what MTHFR is? Okay. I'm delighted to have this audience. It is a genetic test. It's responsible and could be some of the answers to depression. We've solved the gene code. It's a simple blood stick test. Baylor University is doing a large part. There are others doing it. Do you have enough brain width? Do you need to get up and move a little bit? I want you to get this information. Serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, you have to be able to make your own. So inside of all of us, we have a little recipe maker, and we're making serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine as we speak. So that when we need to use it for mood management, for depression, for anxiety, we have it. Well, let's suppose you're missing an ingredient, or you're not able to make enough of one of the ingredients to go in. This genetic test will give us a 15, 30, 50, or 60% decreased ability to be able to make enough neurotransmitter. So it really doesn't matter if you're on an antidepressant. Often it doesn't work. Why? We need to go upstream. We need to be able to understand that maybe you're missing an ingredient. The missing ingredient is folic acid, but it's not folic acid. It's methylated folic acid. So cross out folic acid and put methylated folic acid. Why do I say that? The brain doesn't understand folic acid. It only understands methylated folic acid. So, and this is a brain recipe that you're attempting to go ahead and improve. Um, so what we've begun doing is we've begun labeling uh, men and women who have an underlying depression and offering 
to run the genetic test and then offering to start supplementing with um, methylfolate at a level that begins to balance. Um, I don't know of another treatment center that's doing it. This research is, is, is still, I mean, I don't, can't call it research from the perspective that we're using a clinic for that. We don't have a study going in any way, but the observations that we're seeing is that the men and women are coming back in two weeks feeling somewhat better. So that if anything we can do to, to, to come up with why you might use, and if depression is, is, is part of that formula and you have an MTHFR and you take a methylated folate, you're taking a methylated B vitamin. Seems like that might be a, a really nice balance, balance way to work with it. So here's the little slide. MTHFR is an enzyme. Um, its job is to make methylfolate that's needed in the, in the manufacturing or production of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Decreased MTHFR capacity contributes to ongoing depressive feelings. Adding sufficient methylated folate orally, we've seen improvement in depression as high as 90%. So I'm not, it doesn't take away from the other causes of depression, but depression is simply a symptom. And there are multiple causes, and this is one cause for many men and women. We're bumping into, we're almost, when we, we say, I'd, we'd like you to do this test, we've got about a 90% when we say we need to. We're, we're kind of curious if this happens to be a struggle in the addiction community that we need to be doing it more. But we're, we're not to that point to be looking at it. But I want to bring it up because I think it's, it's very, very important to look at down the road. Here's a key interview question that I want everyone in this room to consider asking. Our job is to get your brain back for PNP. Twelfth step is to give you the trellis. So what happens, and, and I don't mean to separate people out, but allow me to do that for a moment. We have a person <clears throat> who has addiction, but then we have a person. And then we have a person who may not like themselves, low self-esteem, or have some sort of brain-based problem, a head injury, OCD, and we need to be addressing that in treatment. So the question that I ask is, what is it that you want to do with your brain that you can't do, that you have to add a substance, that when you add the substance, you feel better? So some of the things, the answers to that question, to feel normal, to alleviate my depression, my anxiety, my uncomfortableness, my worry, my rumination. My brain won't shut down. The courage to meet other people, to manage my stress, to have energy, to be a better performer, to help with my self-confidence, my self-esteem, to handle my pain. I don't know how to live soberly. So those are questions that we want to address through some form of therapy. What we've learned is that we can train the brain. And so the way that we start training the brain and giving people the skills is to think about your body is a, is a whole lot of rhythms. Just like a band, each instrument in, in an orchestra has a rhythm, um, <clears throat> or excuse me, has a sound. You create rhythms. 
Your brain has a heart rhythm, it has a breath rhythm, it has many brain rhythms, it's got a day-night rhythm, it's got hormonal rhythms, and so one of the things that makes us sick, besides inflammation, is when rhythms are out of balance. So the more rhythms we can bring into balance, the better we're going to be able to have someone feel a sense of wholeness. So I'll talk about balancing rhythms. We also need to teach relaxation. We're all born with the equal and opposite relaxation response, but it's not taught in school. It isn't reading, writing, arithmetic, and relaxation. No. You know, I can, I, when I first started, I, I could ask a 12th grader what stress was. Half of them knew what it was. I'm, I ask every one of my children that come into the clinic, and I just had a seven-year-old go, it, it feels like pressure, or somebody's putting a force on me I don't like. And I'm like, you're exactly right. Webster's defines stress as pressure or force exerted upon a body that tends to deform its shape. So though my little ones aren't picking up and equating yet that they're breathing going out of balance, the rapid heart, they do that about 10 or 12, but stress is moving down. We are teaching our children how to be stressed. We're not teaching our children how to be relaxed or to have the buffer coping strategies. To that end, there are breathing pacers that any of you can, we can download on our phones. We want to awaken and enliven the brain. And then we want to go ahead and direct um, the brain. Do it by building skills and do it by building an inner guide. Basic PNP principles. We want to lay down new brain tracks for positive possibilities. Let's create new options. Let's be the, to help that individual fire new patterns, learn something new, create new railroad tracks, however you want, so that when they come up to a decision, if you've laid down another railroad tracks, and they're right at that point of switching, and the old pattern says go back and use, and you've helped them lay down a new pattern to stop, that they have the tools that they can shift it in this direction. So that's what we're about. As we can do that, we can use the brain by laying down those brain tracks. Come from your strengths to handle your challenges. I've been in this field uh, since 1972. You do the math. Um, and the thing that I've seen psychology do, and I am a psychologist, so I'll speak from my perspective, is we have a tendency to focus on what's wrong and expect it to change. It doesn't change that way. If I have a flat tire on my car, and I stare at that flat tire, that doesn't help it. If I cry, pitch a fit, that doesn't change that tire. I could hold a family meeting. That is not going to change that flat tire. The only way to change that flat tire is to come from the skills that I know how to do. So the more skills I have at handling that life task, the better able I am to change my own flat tire in my life. So I have a very strong way. As a matter of fact, this is the slogan on the side of the bags that come out of Louisville. Come from your strengths to work on your challenges. Um, and <clears throat> when you help people build their level of strengths, those are the tools in their toolkit. If I'm bright, I'm capable, I'm competent, I'm kind, I'm good looking, I like my eyes, uh, I'm, I've got a sense of God. Um, 
those are the tools that, that one uses to, to work their life. The more tools you have in your toolkit, the more positive qualities, the more strengths you can see, the better able you are to manage. About two years ago, this fall, nursing came to us um, at Origins and said, we are dishing out an awful lot of sleeping meds, whether it's trazodone or whatever. So Dr. Lawless and I developed a How to Sleep Naturally program. By December, we had a 40% reduction in medication. Wow. How did that happen? Well, here's a hypothesis. Your mom and dad put you to sleep. But then as an adolescent, you learned to sleep on your own or younger than that. But if you got into drugs and alcohol, it disturbed your sleep. You forgot how to sleep. So now we withdraw and you're not using and you need to sleep, but you don't know how. So you ask for an external substance because that's what you're used to doing. What we've learned is you can actually teach people how to sleep. Once they learn how to sleep, they don't need the medication. That's how we ended up dropping it. So there is a program that's run by the RAs two nights a week. Um, it includes meditation and relaxation, but it actually um, allows, and it's just that program that we've gotten to be able to pass down so that it's on the unit. It's happening in both the men's and the women's unit. Um, and we're continuing to see the fact that we are encouraging them, and it makes sense to them. You're right. I don't know how to sleep. I've forgotten. And so that's a skill. Let's teach you how to sleep again. There are brain patterns. There are sleep studies. There are, but it's a lot less. That may be 10%, maybe 15% of the population. The majority need tools. Stress. Stress kills. Nine out of the top 10 disease killers in our nation are stress-related. So we need to be able to deal with and teach people healthy coping strategies. If I had only one thing to teach the world, I would teach the world to breathe. How you move air is how you function in life. Every time you go out a closed door, you hold your breath. Every time you answer your phone, you hold your breath. It only takes 17 seconds of dysregulated breathing to create a panic attack. So if I could go ahead and normalize the flow of air in and out of your body, you would begin to become calmer. About two-thirds of the oxygen goes to your brain. So what happens is, is that when, we, when, when you're sitting there right now, you can become aware, are you holding your breath? Are you breathing? Are you breathing with your chest? Are you breathing with your abdomen? Are you breathing a little bit of both? Are you breathing deeply? evenly. If you take in an easy deep breath right now, do you feel ratcheting, which is a little sign of stress? When we can go ahead and start teaching people to breathe, and I'm a primarily abdominal breath pattern. You want to take just a moment time. When, when is this? I don't have a time person. Okay. Some if somebody could look that up, I'd be delighted. Um, it's over at this time? Okay. 
Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll come back to the breathing. I have some other slides. Um, the, uh, we want to teach self-relaxation -re skills. The, the, one of the best ways of going and teaching is with the M-Wave. Um, don't have any investment in this whatsoever. It's a little tool that manages breath and heart rate. We use sound. And I'll go to the booth. Um, I really want to support, um, yes, I know the people invented this, but I've now used this and I have no investment whatsoever. It's bioacoustical, it's binaural beats. Um, you can use sound and music to shift the brain. The brain shifts with sound and music. What this bod does is puts beats and you can shift and find more joy because joy is in your brain. It's simply sitting on a brain track. Let's use sound. Sound and light are reasonable medicines. They help balance rhythms. Mindful meditation, absolutely essential. Who's in charge? Your thoughts or you? We begin to see the brain quiet on meditation. Music calms the brain in every way, shape. There's new studies that says rhythmic beats listening at night may interrupt some traumatic memories, those nightmares. Need more study, but I thought it was worth the idea that rhythmic beat, what's a rhythmic beat? Heartbeat. So any music that's at about the rate of the heartbeat will actually promote sleep. And it may help with memory and negative memory interruption. Strong smells. I brought them. Romeo and Juliet knew this. A strong whiff of roses and all of those bad things that he did went away when she smelled the roses. Now, I'm being sexist right now, but, you know, that's the way it was back then. So... But we've learned that if you just take a strong whiff of a clove, peppermint, it will interrupt the thoughts. The last thing, we do a lot of rituals. I don't think there's enough rituals, letting go rituals. And then we have a deprivation chamber. Uh, deprivation chamber, it used to be where it was a waterbed. We don't use a waterbed anymore. Uh, we actually use an airbed. But it is a, they really can't get there until they're a senior, um, well on the, uh, on the steps. They have to be there at least 60 days. Uh, they've learned to develop the strengths, but it's a, it's a place where the individual can go to be able to uh, have an introspective process. It helps with transpersonal awareness. It teaches them enough. I mean, I can't think of a better tool in many respects where you cut out all the outside world. That means you have no substances. You're in this quiet, totally comfortable chamber. You and whatever tools you've, yet, you've learned to develop. It's a really almost like a rite of passage to be able to spend 30 minutes or an hour in the deprivation chamber. I do thank you, uh, and I'll stay around for questions. <laughs>